Here we go. This is the most fun part of any class, exam review. It's always kind of funny to me. I, I find these lectures to be the most uninteresting, and yet the class tends to pay the most attention to them uh, because of what's at stake. So that's good. That's good. Uh, we have a section here at the beginning on some of the councils. This will be a little bit of review for you, but the the review portions of it, I suppose, should make it easier to remember since you've already studied most of these items. You have the Council of Nicaea, where the doctrine of the full deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was being questioned by Arius, and uh, the full deity, the full equality of the Lord Jesus to God the Father was affirmed at that council, and that... Uh, really helps us as we begin to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity in church history. The First Council of Constantinople was where Arianism was finally and fully put to rest. There was more of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit at that council. The result of that council was the Niciano-Constantinopolitan Creed, which includes information about the Holy Spirit affirming His full ontological equality with the Father and the Son. Another heresy, Apollinarianism, was also denounced at the First Council of Constantinople. It was in the year 381 under Theodosius as emperor. Uh, the Council of Ephesus was in 431. This is the council where they were debating whether we should refer to Mary as Theotakos, Christotakos, or Anthropotakos, bearer of God, bearer of Christ, or bearer of man. Nestorianism was condemned. Cyril of Alexandria was the one who supported the bearer of God view, and that is the view that ultimately won out. Again, the purpose of that title was not to elevate Mary at this point in church history, though she will be elevated by the Catholic Church later. It was instead to safeguard the incarnation that God became man and that Jesus didn't take on the role of Son of God sometime after His birth, but rather that it was eternal God who was incarnate in the flesh at the Incarnation. The Robber Synod was in 449. This is where Dioscorus of Alexandria, the successor of Cyril, tried to push through a view known as Eutychianism, which later comes to be known as the Monophysite view, that within Christ... There was one nature and only one person, or one nature, one person. Uh, so that one nature view was condemned later. Uh, the hypostatic union is that there's two natures in the one person, and uh, that was affirmed two years later in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. So the Council of Chalcedon is the more full council. It denounces the... Robber Synod, which would have been called the Second Council of Ephesus, and it affirms the fact that there are two natures in the one person of Christ, 100% God, 100% man, and that those two natures coexist in the one person of Christ without confusion and without mixture, but also without separation and uh, without any um, wall of, of division between the two. The Second Council of Constantinople in 553 was a reaffirmation of the Council of Chalcedon, particularly in the East, where the Monophysite-Diophysite controversy continued to uh, rage. And that council was called by Justinian I. And again, it affirmed the Diophysite or Chalcedonian position. The Third Council of Constantinople was in the year 680, and this was a debate over whether or not the Lord Jesus had one will or two wills, the monotholite and diotholite controversies. And the result of this was that it was affirmed that the Lord Jesus has two wills in keeping with his two natures, as opposed to just one will in keeping with his one person. And I personally feel that perhaps this council is getting a little bit too far into the speculative details of Greek metaphysics. But in any case, it is one of the seven major ecumenical councils. 
The Third Council of Constantinople is what we just discussed. Uh, sorry, I looked down at the wrong place in my list. Uh, the Council of Hieria. The Council of Hieria met in 754. This was the council where icons were condemned and denounced and prohibited in the Eastern Roman Empire. The Council of Hieria condemned the use of icons because there were those who, the iconoclasts, who felt that icons constituted a form of idolatry and that God was punishing Byzantine armies because they were worshiping these images. But just a few years later, in 787, at the Second Council of Nicaea, the Queen Irene was able to hold a council in which the Icona duels, or the supporters of icons, overturned the Council of Hieria, and the Second Council of Nicaea then becomes the official position which promotes and encourages and affirms the use of icons in both the East and the West, which is why you have all those figurines and pictures and statues and everything else adorning both Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. Then if we fast forward all the way to the year 414, we have the Council of Constance in Germany from 414 to 418, from 1414 to 1418. Make sure I get that right. Uh, 1414 to 1418, we have the Council of Constance at which time the papal schism that we talked about last class period was ended. It's also the council that burned John Huss at the stake. Uh, there's a couple other councils that are important, but I didn't include them on the exam. So things like the Fourth Lateran Council and others are significant, but um, they didn't make the cut. Yeah, Wycliffe's, uh, Wycliffe's um, and I don't know if we'll get to talk all that much about John Wycliffe and John Huss today, hopefully at the end of class, but John Wycliffe was really the mentor for John Huss, and uh, when John Huss was condemned and burned at the stake, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was so angry at John Wycliffe that they exhumed his body and burned his bones in effigy. So he died of natural causes, uh, but was later, his remains were burned uh, as a symbol of how the Catholic Church felt about John Wycliffe. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the Crusades. The Crusades started in 1095 and uh, go till about 1290, so about a 200-year period of time. The First Crusade really sets up the first 50 years of the Crusading period. This is the Crusade that was successful when Alexius I, who was the emperor of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, when he asked for help from Western Europe, Pope Urban II began to preach crusade, and we had then two waves of soldiers that came down to help Constantinople. There were first the peasants who came, because uh, Peter the Hermit and Walter the Penniless, you remember them? They had gone around and preached crusade, and so we had thousands of peasants that came down and were obliterated. Uh, but then we had some knights who came and soldiers, trained soldiers who came, and they were successful eventually taking Jerusalem in the year 1099. So the First Crusade is somewhat successful. Uh, the Second Crusade was a time in the late 1140s, 1148, 1149, right in there, where Jerusalem was lost and where a number of the crusading kingdoms that had been established experienced significant losses. Those losses were then accentuated just a couple decades later during the Third Crusade. The Third Crusade uh, involves the most famous of the leaders. The Third Crusade involved uh, Philip Augustus of France, Frederick I or Frederick Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire, and then most famous of all, Richard the Lionheart of England, and also then Saladin of the Muslim armies. And uh, Saladin was able to essentially defeat all three of those other kings 
Frederick died in the Middle East. Philip and Richard went back home to Europe where they continued to fight each other um, over the ensuing decades. So the Third Crusade was also a disaster, but not as bad as the Fourth Crusade, which was the, really the low point of the Crusades, where in 1204 we had Western Roman, well, Western Latin soldiers, better way to say that, Western Latin soldiers, European soldiers, who instead of going down to the Middle East to fight against the Muslim infidels, instead went to Constantinople and through a series of events found themselves attacking the capital city of their allies. And the net result was that the empire there in the east was um, greatly, greatly weakened. In fact, for a period of time it was under Latin control until the Greeks finally reconquered it. And then it existed until 1453 when it was conquered by the Ottoman Turks. Uh, the Children's Crusade, another low point, is where we have perhaps as many as 30 or 40,000 probably young teenage children from across Europe who marched down to the south thinking that they were going to go on a crusade without any weapons. <clears throat> when they got to Marseille and the Mediterranean Sea didn't part for them, many of them went back home discouraged and disillusioned. Some of them got on ships, and those ships either sank or sold the children into slavery. The Knights Templar, the Knights of St. John, and the Teutonic Knights are three different orders of knights that were established during the crusading period. The Knights Templar were established uh, largely through the preaching and influence of Bernard of Clairvaux, and they were named after the fact that their headquarters met in Jerusalem at the site of Solomon's temple. They are known for, <clears throat> of course, all of the legends, the Holy Grail legends and others, but known for the um, wealth that they accrued, largely through the kind of rudimentary banking system that they established in escorting pilgrims from Europe down to the Holy Land. The Knights of St. John, or the, Knight, the Hospitaller Knights, uh, were initially created to uh, help, uh, help and care for the sick and needy and also to protect pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land. And they did establish a system of hospitals, which is why they're called that. The Teutonic Knights, uh, they are distinct from the Knights of St. John, though they also did establish some hospitals as well. But the Teutonic Knights, though they initially did a little bit of work in the Middle East, are most well known for their work up in uh, the northern part of Europe, the northern crusades around the Baltic Sea, where they um, helped to forcibly, I suppose, convert some of the old pagan tribes that were still there to Christianity. Okay, let's talk about some of the church leaders that you'll need to know. And some of these reach all the way back to the earlier part of the patristic period. We have John Chrysostom of the 4th century, who was the great expository preacher and the bishop of Constantinople. We have Augustine of Hippo, who was the great systematic theologian of the 5th and um, yeah, of the 4th and uh, early 5th centuries. So John Chrysostom in the 4th century, Augustine of Hippo in the 4th and early 5th centuries. He died in 430. Augustine, of course, most well known for probably his confessions and also his work on the Trinity and his book, The City of God. Jerome, the great scholar of that same time period, was the one who translated the Bible from the original languages into Latin, and that became the basis for the Latin Vulgate. Nestorius accused of teaching a heresy in which he put a wall of division between Christ's humanity and Christ's deity, such that he was accused of essentially teaching that Jesus was a schizophrenic who had such distinct natures that it actually created two persons or two personalities within Christ. Uh, Historians debate whether or not Nestorius actually believed that, but Cyril of Alexandria at least thought that he did, accused him of teaching that, and successfully had him condemned at the Council of Ephesus. Cyril of Alexandria uh, is mentioned there because of his involvement in the condemnation of 
Nestorianism. Cyril does help give us a little bit of the language of the hypostatic union, though that will be really codified by Leo in Leo's tome. We'll talk about him in a moment. Uh, Dioscorus was the successor of Cyril of Alexandria. He was influenced by a monk named Eutychus. Again, Eutychus taught one nature, one person. So he denied the dual nature of Christ, teaching instead that Christ was some sort of a hybrid between the two natures. And Dioscorus took that view to the Second Council of Ephesus, which was later denounced as the Robber Synod of 449. <laughs> I don't know why I have Leontius before Leo the Great. That's out of order chron chronologically. I apologize for that. So let's talk about Leo the Great first. Leo is the one whose tome was read at the Council of Chalcedon. The language of that tome gives us the hypostatic, the language of the hypostatic union. Again, that doctrine is based in scripture, but the articulation of it comes to us through church history. So the hypostatic union is that the person of Christ that he possesses after the incarnation, two natures, fully God and fully man, and those two natures coexist in the one person. So two natures, one person, the hypostatic union. And again, that those two natures coexist without separation or division, but without confusion or admixture. Or change, I think, is the actual language of the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, Leo also is significant because he was the one who consolidated papal power. He's the one who argued from Matthew 16, 18 that he was the successor of Peter and therefore the Pope is the head of all of the Christians in the world. That was the argument. He got a weak emperor in the West to declare Rome to be the head church. And he was also the one in the city of Rome itself who went out to meet with... Um, <clears throat> why did his name just escape me? Thank you. Attila the Hun. Um Got too many bad guys going through my, my brain there, trying to think of uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the notorious uh, military leaders of church history. Yes, Attila the Hun. He went out to meet with Attila the Hun and convinced Attila not to attack and sack the city of Rome. Uh, Leontius, who is listed right before Leo, but actually lived after Leo. Leontius of Byzantium was the theologian who helped to articulate the parameters uh, by which uh, the bishops involved at the Second Council of Constantinople reaffirmed the Chalcedonian Creed. So Leontius of Byzantium is closely associated with the Second Council of Constantinople. Again, Byzantium, Constantinople, they are the same place. It's just two names for the same place. Istanbul, also the same place, just a different name for it. Gregory the Great is known as the missionary pope. He was the one who expanded papal influence by sending missionaries to Spain, sending missionaries uh, to the Angles and Saxons of Britain, and also continuing to strengthen ties with the Franks. So if Leo the Great consolidated papal power and gave it a theological basis, Gregory the Great expanded papal influence through his missionary efforts. And then Augustine or Augustine of Canterbury, not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Canterbury was the missionary who was sent by Gregory the Great to the Angles and the Saxons. And he had a, a very successful mission converting those tribes to Christianity and thereby really completing the conversion of the British Isles since Ireland and Scotland had already been evangelized through the efforts of Patrick to Ireland and then Irish missionaries to Scotland. Okay. Heretics. <laughs> we have uh, Arius mentioned because we're still talking a little bit about the Council of Nicaea. He denied the full equality of the second member of the Trinity, denied the full equality of the Son of God to God the Father. Apollinarius was denounced at the First Council of Constantinople. Apollinarius denied the full humanity of Christ. So he taught that the humanity of Christ was simply a 
shell of a body that the Spirit of God sort of possessed, where uh, thereby denying the, the full humanity, the spirit of um, the invisible part of what makes people people, he affirmed really only the material part. Uh, Eutychus taught one nature, one person, so he denied the dual nature, teaching that Christ was something of a hybrid of humanity and deity, condemned at the Council of Chalcedon. Nestorianism, condemned at the Council of Ephesus, then condemned again at Chalcedon, then condemned again at the Second Council of Constantinople, so Nestorianism got condemned quite a few times. But again, this was the schizophrenic idea that two natures equals two persons. Pelagius was the one whom Augustine came into conflict with over the doctrines of total depravity and the, um, the sovereignty of God in salvation and the monergistic nature of salvation, that God is the one who initiates and performs everything in justification, whereas Pelagius taught a synergistic model, meaning that the sinner plays a part in his conversion. And ultimately, Pelagius' view leads to a form of work salvation because Pelagius taught that it was possible to always make good choices and therefore live essentially a perfect life. So Pelagianism is condemned by Augustine. Eventually, a somewhat moderate view called semi-Pelagianism becomes kind of the de facto view of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Mohammed is listed as a heretic here because, again, he used, he referred to both Jewish and Christian scriptures, i.e. the Bible, in an effort to gain credibility for his false religion. And so he gained an, a level of credibility for his claims by asserting that he was a prophet in the same vein as Moses and David and um, Abraham and even Jesus, who was considered a great prophet by Muhammad in the Quran. But of course the Quran denies the key components of the gospel, such as the virgin birth of Christ and the death burial and resurrection of Christ, teaching instead that as a good prophet, Jesus was taken to heaven before his death. Emperors and kings. <clears throat> Go all the way back to Constantine. Constantine is the one who called the Council of Nicaea. He is also the one who issued the Edict of Milan, which granted religious freedom to Christians living within the Roman Empire. And he really sets in motion what will eventually become the official recognition of Christianity as the state religion of Rome. Julian the Apostate is the last pagan emperor. He only reigned for two years from 361 to 363. And he attempted to kind of undo the tidal wave of change that was taking place in the 4th century as Rome converted from paganism to Christianity but he ultimately was unsuccessful in that attempt. Theodosius I, or Theodosius the Great, who died in 395, was the last sole emperor of the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. He was the one who declared Nicene Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. He did that in the year 380. The following year, 381, he called this the First Council of Constantinople. Theodosius II was the one who commissioned the uh, robber synod, also was there for the First Council of Ephesus in 431. And Theodosius II, as you remember reading in Olson, was the one who was thrown off of his horse, kind of met an untimely end. And uh, those who didn't like the robber synod and his involvement in that saw that as God's judgment on him for allowing Dioscorus and Eutychianism to uh, gain the platform that it had at that council. Uh, Justinian is the emperor who called the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. 
He also revised Roman law, which was really significant from a history of law perspective. A lot of those laws undergird still the laws in some of the nations of Western Europe. But uh, from a historical perspective, he expanded the boundaries of the Eastern Roman Empire, trying to reconquer lots of the territory that had been lost in the West. He reconquered much of North Africa, reconquered much of Italy, but expended his armies and his resources so thin that historians looking back think he may have actually contributed more to the decline of the Eastern Roman Empire than to its resurgence of former glory. All right, we get now into the iconoclast controversy. Emperor Leo III is where the iconoclast controversy starts. He's the one who removed an, a large icon of Christ from the entrance to the palace there in Constantinople. He took it down and just put up a cross instead. And that created major controversy between the iconoclast and the iconoduals. His son continued that iconoclast um, viewpoint. His grandson, Leo V, who's mentioned there, also continued that iconoclast uh, viewpoint. Leo V, though, was married to Irene. Irene was a secret iconoduel. When Leo V died, Irene was able then, because she was reigning in his place, kind of a co-regent with her son, but she was able to convene a new council in which the iconoclasts were defeated and the iconoduels were victorious. That whole series of events repeated itself almost exactly with another set of Byzantine emperors and the wife of the third of those was Theodora and Theodora then again affirmed uh, the icons and um, continued the position that had been upheld at the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. Alex. Justinian? Theodora? Uh, she was, what was the name of Theodora's husband? It was, uh, I think it was, was it Justinian? It would have been Justinian the second or third or something like that. It's not the Justinian of earlier because Theodora is much, much, much later. We're in the 800s in the ninth century and Justinian, the great Justinian the first lived in the 500s, the sixth century. But, um. I had forgotten the name of her husband. And you guys don't have to remember it either because it's not on the exam review. Uh, <laughs> Charles Martel, meanwhile, in the western part of Europe, Charles Martel, the uh, grandfather of Charlemagne, was fighting the Muslim advance from Spain into France at the Battle of Tours. Battle of Tours in 732 put an end to the Muslim advance there and uh, shored up the border then between a Muslim-dominated Spain and a Frankish-dominated uh, France and Germany. And eventually the Christians will push the Muslims completely out of Spain, though Thanks to immigration and things today, there's still a very, very large Muslim population in Spain and other parts of southern Europe. Uh, Charlemagne is, his name means Charles the Great. He was the one who on Christmas Day of 800 was crowned Emperor of the Romans by Leo III. This was something that made the Eastern Christians a little bit annoyed since they considered themselves to be the only true representation of the Roman Empire. But in any case, Charlemagne kind of represents the pinnacle of the Frankish Empire. There was even a little bit of a renaissance that took place, a Carolinian renaissance. Carol referring to Charles, a Carolinian renaissance that took place under Charlemagne's reign. Emperor Alexius I is the one who in 1095... Uh, called for crusading help when uh, the Muslims continued to threaten the security of the, what remained of the Byzantine Empire at that time. And uh, Urban II was the Pope who responded and began to preach crusade. Emperor Alexius IV was the son of Isaac II, 
Isaac II had been deposed as the Byzantine emperor. His son, Alexius, came over to the crusaders of the Fourth Crusade and asked them to come restore him and his father to power. When they did that, Alexius took on the name Alexius IV. And he said, I'll pay you guys back in the next six months. And he was killed by a usurper named Mertzophilus. Mertzophilus, when he became the new emperor, took on the name Alexius V. And he did that just to make the exam harder for you to remember who is who. <laughs> Alexius V then is the usurper who refused to pay the crusaders. And uh, then in 1204, they attacked the city. And we have that major breach now uh, between east and west. Frederick I, Richard I, Philip Augustus, and Saladin are the four main personalities associated with the Third Crusade. And um, Frederick's from the Holy Roman Empire, Philip's from France, Richard's from England, and Saladin's the uh, incredible military genius who shames all of them by defeating them and sending them back home. Uh, well, Fred, uh, Frederick never made it back home. He died in kind of a freak accident while trying to cross a river. Richard is Richard the Lionhearted of England, and Philip or Philippe Augustus is the King of France. Saladin uh, was the Muslim army commander and ruler who um, was able to successfully not only defeat them, but make major strides against any remaining crusader kingdoms in the area. Yep? Is that the character that uh, in the movie Kingdom of Heaven, I don't know if you saw that, was it based off that salad? Because I think that was his. And he was a Muslim emperor as well. And from my understanding, it was historically accurate, about 80%. I'm not really familiar with that movie, so I, I don't know for sure. But this is the most famous period of time of the Crusades. So if they were to make a movie about the Crusades, it would probably involve these characters because they're the most well-known, the most romantic in the sense of all of the legends and myths involve these individuals. Um, Louis IX was kind of the last of the Crusading kings. We didn't really talk about him much in the class. Uh, he was involved in the final few Crusades. He finally died in a Crusade. As a result of dying in an unsuccessful military venture, they made him a saint, and we know him today as St. Louis, and St. Louis, Missouri is named after him. So, <laughs> I don't know what that says about St. Louis. I don't think anything, but it, uh, in terms of the city itself, but it's kind of ironic. St. Louis, Missouri is named after Louis IX. Um, Yeah, he died in the, uh, well, it depends on how you number them, but the Seventh Crusade, uh, Lewis was killed, and he was then canonized as a saint for his efforts. Um, maybe a little preview of postmodernism, where we reward people based on how hard they try, not on how well they do. But in any case, uh, Lewis uh, was then made a saint, and uh, St. Louis, Missouri is named after him. Uh, the Byzantine Empire is synonymous with the Eastern Roman Empire. It is the name that is given to that empire during the Middle Ages. And Constantinople is often referred to as Byzantium, and then later becomes known as Istanbul. Mehmed II is the one who defeats the remnants of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. And a little bit of what we talked about on Tuesday, where he got that... Um, Belgian uh, engineer Orban to build a big cannon, Orban's bombard, and uh, that was part of the kind of the fun details of what took place in that battle. Now, obviously, the defenders of Constantinople didn't think it was all that fun, but it was one of the first major military battles to use gunpowder, and so it's often considered the the fall of Constantinople in 1453 is often considered the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the modern age.
There's now, now there's retorts in my mind about cookies and eggnog and all sorts of things, but uh, oh, it's, that's great. All right, medieval theologians and scholars. John of Damascus is one of the leading theologians of medieval Eastern Orthodoxy. He's considered even by the Roman Catholic Church to kind of be the last of the church fathers. Uh, I think they've extended it a little bit too far since he's alive um, into the 8th century. He was uh, involved very much in the Icona dual movement. He was a huge proponent of icons and, and, and really the major theological force propelling the Icona dual resistance when the iconoclasts were banning the use of icons. He actually ministered uh, in a Muslim-controlled nation, and uh, a lot of his writings even have to do with the difference between Christianity and Islam at that time and, uh, and other things. So a significant individual in Eastern Orthodoxy. Bernard of Clairvaux was the one who preached crusade during the Second Crusade in particular, and who also was a major proponent of the Knights Templar. And uh, we talked a little bit about some of the things that Bernard used to justify the Crusades. How on the one hand, he says things that are very devotional, and that people, even later in, during the Reformation, and even in modern times, sometimes people view Bernard of Clairvaux as a very devotional writer. But he also preached crusade, taking Paul's military metaphors and uh, other military metaphors in Scripture and making them literal and saying you need to actually go, you know, fight. Anselm of Canterbury is significant for a few different reasons. Uh, he's significant in the realm of apologetics because of his ontological argument for the existence of God. He's significant in the realm of the understanding of the atonement because he is the one who uh, advocates uh, the substitution view, the satisfaction theory, that's the more accurate term for it, the idea that God's wrath is what was satisfied at the cross and not a ransom paid to the devil or any other sort of less precise theory that might have come through the Middle Ages. Uh, he was also uh, a scholar. We talked a little bit about the fact that he was one of those scholars who um, insisted on the fact that revelation has to precede understanding or faith has to precede understanding. So revelation is the authority and reason is subservient to revelation. And that's going to change a little bit when we especially get into the Enlightenment. Pierre Abelard was on the opposite side of that. Pierre Abelard said, no reason has to trump revelation. So I have to understand something first before I can believe it. Uh, reason and understanding comes first. Believing flows out of that. And in that, that paradigm will become very popular during the Enlightenment age. Abelard is also significant because he was an advocate of the moral influence theory of the atonement, which is to say that Christ did not die to pay for your sin. Christ died as a good example of what ultimate sacrifice looks like. And when you serve other people in a sacrificial way, you are reflecting his sacrifice on the cross. So he was a good example. And when you live sacrificially and show love for others, you are also being a good example or following in his footsteps. That will also become a very popular view. In fact, the modern liberal view of the cross is in essence the moral influence theory. Albertus Magnus was the teacher of Thomas Aquinas, which is why he is significant. He also is significant in history because he's one of the first to teach that there should be no conflict between science and religion. Uh, another concept that becomes very popular in the Enlightenment period. Uh, that's who I'm talking about, Albertus Magnus. He was the, the mentor and teacher of Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas studied under him at the University of Paris. And this is in the 13th century, so probably around uh, 
1250 or so. Thomas Aquinas is the most famous of the scholastics. And uh, Thomas Aquinas is most well known for two different works. One is called the Summa Contra Gentiles, and the other is the Summa Theologica. The second is more famous than the first. The first, though, the Summa Contra Gentiles, was written as an apologetic against, un or not against, two unbelievers, and uh, was intended to show non-Christians why Christianity is true. The uh, <clears throat> Summa Theologica was intended to show Christians what it was they needed to know in order to begin a lifetime of study in theology, which was considered the queen of the sciences at that time. Uh, the scholastic method we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. William of Ockham is famous for his, uh, yeah, his philosophical uh, proposition known as Ockham's Razor, which is if you have multiple theories or hypotheses for how something could happen, you choose the one with the least number of assumptions. In other words, you choose the most simple explanation, or the most simple explanation is usually correct. That's Occam's razor. And uh, that becomes an important part of the apologetic and rational process uh, during this time as well. An important contribution. Yep, Jason. So his point in that was that that was a Christian apologetic? Uh, William of Ockham. Yeah, it was. Ockham's razor was in the context of uh, apologetics at this period of time. Yes. Have you ever seen the movie Contact? Yeah. Because they actually use it in the, in the context. They use it the opposite way. Yeah. Well, a lot of these philosophical arguments uh, get debated throughout history. And, uh, and non-Christians attempt to use them against Christianity, and then Christians attempt to use them back. Uh, so uh, the cosmological argument, there you have atheists who try to use the cosmological argument against Christians, the teleological argument against Christians, in the sense that they're trying to disprove that, it's, that the assumptions are true. Occam's razor gets used against... Um, and so on. So that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, my understanding of, of Occam's razor is that it, it developed within the context of this new philosophical um, uh, evidentialist uh, approach to apologetics and to theology. So in the sense that they could use reason the opposite point only shows that revelation really does have to receive reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, I mean, that really is the great, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about in this class um, the influence of Aristotelianism on medieval Christianity during this time period. And that really is the great shift that takes place. Plato now, Plato's not a Christian, but Plato had taught that there is this invisible world beyond the visible and that this world is simply an imperfect reflection of that perfect world that exists. And it really is a, philosoph a philosophical construct which depends on faith as its premise because it's based on this invisible world that people believe in and then interpret reality as a result of. So, so faith precedes reason in that system. And of course, in Christianity, distinct from Platonism, in Christianity, faith precedes reason. I mean, Hebrews 11.1 1 is explicit that faith is the evidence of things not seen. So that's why Christianity initially borrowed so much from Platonism in terms of its philosophy, because the, the construct seemed to, to be harmonious. Now, in some cases, it took them too far and it took them into error. Uh, because the wisdom of men always, at some point, comes into contradiction with the wisdom of God. But you can see faith preceding reason in that system. Aristotle, on the other hand, taught no, that there's not this invisible realm of perfect things, but rather that this world just kind of is what it is. And so now, reason and experience and the empirical information that we draw from the world around us, 
That's what we base our knowledge off of. So now reason precedes and even trumps and even eliminates the need for revelation in an Aristotelian system. Christianized Aristotelianism tries to find a, a common ground between the two. But pretty soon, Western Europe is going to say, we don't need the revelation part at all, and we're going to have the Enlightenment. In fact, um, who's the, why did I just blank on his name? Carl Truman. can't remember Attila the Hun. I can't remember Carl Truman. Um, but they don't have anything in common either, um, except for the fact that I couldn't remember their names today. Carl Truman, uh, in a really helpful article that he wrote a little while ago, on the um, Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals blog, he says that he believes the most important thing that took place in the last 1,000 years in Western Christianity was not the Reformation, but was this shift from faith-based approach to reason-based approach, i.e. the shift from Platonism to Aristotelianism as the philosophical construct in which Christianity itself was interpreted. And um, he says that that shift was the most significant thing that happened because of the results of it all. Now, he doesn't say that's the best thing that happened. He sees it as a negative thing, but he says it's the most significant thing that happened. Uh, I think what's helpful... Uh, and I know I've got more to go through and we only have 10 minutes left, but I think what's helpful to understand about that shift taking place is it helps us to view our own culture as, a, as really a faith-based philosophical system, which is what Aristotelianism is, because it rejects an unseen world, but it does so on the basis of faith. And uh, when you recognize that you know, people talk about science and reason. What are science and reason? Science and reason are the result of a philosophical system. And people don't often acknowledge the philosophical system because they think that science is somehow outside of philosophy, but that's not the case. The interpretation of the evidence is always done through a philosophical lens. So, I'll stop. All right. Um, where are we at? Uh, oh, Desiderius Erasmus. Okay, there's, there's one little section of notes, the last section of notes on the pre-reformers that you should read because we were going to spend time in class going over it, uh, but the semester, we ran out of time. So we pick up with that lecture when we get back from Christmas, so you're not going to miss it, but there are some things from that lecture that are on the exam, so you should at least look through it. Desiderius Desiderius Erasmus is known as the Prince of the Humanists. He lives during the 15th and 16th centuries. He is a contemporary of Martin Luther. And he is the one who produces a critical text of the Greek New Testament that becomes the basis for Tyndale's English translation and for Luther's German translation. And he becomes a very significant individual. We'll talk a lot about him next semester. Johannes Reuschlin is also a humanist, German scholar, and he recovers the study of Hebrew in Western uh, education, Western religious education. Johannes Reuschlin. So the fact that you have to go to Hebrew class, you can blame that on Johannes Reuschlin. Jacques Lefebvre is a French humanist. He translated the Bible into French. And he actually met with John Calvin and had a significant influence on Calvin's life. Might be part of the reason that Calvin came to saving faith. And met with Calvin just a few years before Calvin published his Institutes. So we're starting to get into now the Reformation period. Uh, humanism. What is humanism? That's mentioned, I think, a little bit lower in the theological issues. We think of humanism as secular atheism, Dawkins and Hitchens and the New Atheists and those guys. Humanism was not that in the medieval period. Humanism is the rediscovery of the humanities. The humanities referring to the languages and the philosophies of the period of antiquity, Greece and Rome. So it's a rediscovery of the humanities. 
All right. Got to go quickly now. Leo III was the pope who labeled Charlemagne as emperor of the Romans. Leo V was an uh, pope. I said emperor, didn't I? Pope Leo III was the pope who uh, identified Charlemagne or crowned Charlemagne as emperor of the Romans. Pope Leo V is uh, an emperor who reigned for only two months, and I listed him just as a reminder of how bad it got in the 9th and 10th centuries for the papacy because he was killed by the guy who came after him. Leo IX is the pope who sent a delegation to Patriarch Michael Cerularius in 1054 and demanded, on the basis of the donation of Constantine and other things, demanded that the Patriarch recognize the pope as the most significant person in the church. And that caused the, the East-West Schism, or the Great Schism as we call it. Urban II was the pope who preached crusade. And Hadrian, or Adrian I, and he's a little bit out of order there, he was actually the predecessor to Leo III, and he was an enemy of Leo III. They were, came from two rival factions. He was the one who initially asked for the Franks to come help when Rome was attacked by the Lombards. Michael Cerularius was the patriarch of the Great Schism of 1054, and then the Babylonian captivity is what we talked about uh, on Tuesday, the 70-year period where the papacy moved from Rome to France. Gregory XI is the pope who moved it back to Rome. And then Martin V, after the papal schism, Martin V was the pope who was declared to be the only true pope by the Council of Constance when they denounced all three of the other popes. Uh, places, I think those are all pretty self-explanatory. Theological issues, filioque clause was the addition of and the son to the Niciano-Constantinopolitan creed by Latin Christians with regard to the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Christotakos, Theotakos, Anthropotakos all have to do with the Council of Ephesus. Monophysite, Diophysite debate all has to do with the really the Council of the Second Council of Constantinople. Monothelite, diothelite uh, controversy has to do with the uh, Third Council of Constantinople, Iconoclasts and Iconoduels, the Second Council of Nicaea. Papal authority was the main reason for the Great Schism of 1054. The satisfaction theory of the atonement is Anselm's theory. Ransom theory was the prominent medieval theory. Moral influence theory is Abelard's theory. Arguments, evidential uh, medieval arguments, cosmological, there is a cause, a creator, a first cause who created this world. Teleological, there's design in the universe. Ontological, God exists because nothing greater than him can be imagined. That's Anselm's argument. Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is usually the right one, which by the way, a creator is a much more simple explanation than evolution. Going back to Jason's question. Uh, scholastic theology has to do with the method of learning of the school where questions and answers were asked about these different theological issues and scholastic scholars, that's redundant, but it includes, scholastic theologians include Anselm of Canterbury, Peter Abelard of Paris, and the prince of the scholastics, Thomas Aquinas. Natural theology is not completely unrelated. Natural theology says, I'm going to base my theology in what I can experience and in what I know to be true. So reason and science become the basis for theology rather than just revelation as the basis for theology. Part of that shift. Nominalism. All right, how do I explain this in 30 seconds or less? Uh, Plato taught that there was this ideal world that existed outside of reality. So he said that reality was based, as uh, that our understanding of reality was a reflection of the true reality that existed somewhere else. That is known as either Platonic realism or Platonic idealism, because it's these forms or these universals or these perfect things that are outside of us and beyond this realm that our imperfect world is only a reflection of. 
Nominalism denies that that other perfect world exists. That's it. So nominalism is the denial of universals and therefore a denial of Platonism. So it's, it's not claiming to be a Christian and acting like a pagan, though that's how we use the term nominal today. <laughs> Humanism, we've talked about. Eastern Orthodoxy, you are aware of. Apothaticism is the negative theology that characterizes Eastern Orthodox approach to truth. Theosis is deification. God became man so that man might become God. It's part of Eastern Orthodox teaching. Tradition is highly regarded in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So all three of those bullet points have to do with Eastern Orthodoxy. Roman Catholicism, the western half of Christianity. The treasury of merit is this bank account in heaven where Christ and Mary and the saints have stored up all sorts of extra credit since you know being a good person can get you to heaven immediately so you don't have to go to purgatory. They were so good that they've stored up extra credit and when you are bad, you can do sacramental works like penance and you can then get some of your time in purgatory reduced by borrowing the extra credit that exists in the treasury of merit. And, uh, especially during the medieval period, for a little bit of money, you can buy an indulgence of grace, which essentially also knocks off time in purgatory. And so you give a little bit of money, you get a certificate of indulgence. If you buy it for a relative who's gone on before you, or if you buy it for yourself, it reduces the time in purgatory. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church still has indulgences, but they are not indulgences that you pay for. Instead, you go and do good deeds, and the Pope can grant you indulgences, because the Pope has the power to forgive sins, but of course he's not willing to forgive everybody's sins unless they do stuff for him which is Martin Luther's whole complaint against indulgences in the 95 Theses, which we'll get to after Christmas. Uh, celibacy of priests was first made official in, I looked it up, 1123 at the first council of, uh, the first Lateran council in 1123, mandatory celibacy of priests. Purgatory is where Christians go when they die to pay for the sins that Christ couldn't pay for on the cross so that they can earn their way to heaven. Uh, limbo is where babies go when they die if they have not been baptized, but the Roman Catholic Church denied its belief in limbo just a few years ago. The assumption of Mary is that Mary ascended to heaven just like Jesus did. Relics, sacraments, crusades, and inquisitions we've already talked about in this class. All right, the pre-reformers, this last little section, and I know it's 12 o'clock, but just give me a, three more minutes. The pre-reformers refer to the groups of the men and then the groups that they really started who were protesting certain aspects of Roman Catholic teaching and theology even before the Reformation officially began in the 16th century. And this was the content of that last lecture that you're going to need to read through to prepare yourself for the exam. And this is the place where we're going to start next semester with these pre-reformers. But the really encouraging thing is that, you know, we're looking at a time period in the high Middle Ages here where the Roman Catholic Church has gotten really, really corrupt. The system is rotten. It's really encouraging to know that even at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, where the sacramental system is made official, we already have these pre-reformed groups starting to operate such that the gospel is never fully lost or eclipsed in the history of the church. Peter Waldo in the 12th century, and then the Waldensians, uh, known initially as the poor men of Lyon, but the Waldensian movement, that Waldensian movement becomes a branch of the Reformation in the 16th century when the Reformation fully reaches its climax. John Wycliffe in England and his followers known as the Lollards, I mean, these men emphasize sola scriptura, they emphasize sola fide, John Huss in the 14th century, who really was the follower of John Wycliffe, the disciple of John Wycliffe. And then the Hussites, his immediate, the name given to his immediate followers. Out of that comes a church known as the Moravian Church, which also plays a, a key role in the Reformation. And then we have an Italian, whose name I can never properly pronounce, so that's why Jordan Standridge is here to correct me, Girolamo Savonarola, I don't know. Uh, yeah, 
Sorry. Uh, I know uh, Jean Paulo, who was in my class, uh, he he corrected me, and then I tried to repeat it, and I still couldn't say it right. So his name has more vowels than anyone else in church history. Um, but he was in the city of Florence in the late 1400s. And all of this then leads up to Martin Luther. Again, Luther doesn't see himself as the originator of the Reformation, and we shouldn't see him that way either. Luther sees himself as someone who is building on generations of prior men who had taken a stand for truth. But in God's providence, circumstances are such that when Luther does the same thing, it explodes onto the scene in a way it had never done before, and we call that Reformation. So that's where we'll pick up after Christmas. Thank you guys for a great semester. You are dismissed. I promise I won't leave you Catholics forever. We will come back and become Protestants together. So have a wonderful Christmas. We'll see you after the break.